Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. It can be a helpless feeling to watch a loved one slip away, becoming increasingly lost to mental illness, to drug use and homelessness and even incarceration. This airing of this episode is our 100th episode of the Morning Glory Project. And so I decided to take this a little bit different direction than I often have in the past. And in honor of that, I decided to be a little more personal. So today I welcome to the Morning Glory Project a loved one, a dear one in my family, in my extended family as a guest. This is a loved one that I've known since she was born (laughs) and that I honestly once really, if I'm really honest, many, many more times than once thought I had lost forever. At her request, I'm interviewing this guest using only her nickname, Mish, (laughs) not because there's any shame or secrecy to her story. And anyone close to us will know who this is. So there's no secrecy, just a thin veil of privacy to the degree that any such privacy is even possible in this digital age we're living in right now. Mish is today using her resourcefulness and lots of work on her part, is today a self-sufficient, working full-time in a helping field, and as of the air date today, February 15th, 2023, she is celebrating her fourth year of sobriety. Today, she shares her story of how the toxic cocktail of untreated mental illness, trauma history, and methamphetamine use added to a history of tragic loss and trauma, dragged her from her life to the fringes of society, to homelessness, repeated incarceration. And really, she quite nearly didn't make it. She'll share not only the experience of being lost, but how even in her broken mental state, her psyche served her to protect her and help her find her way back to health and back to those that love her most. Mish, I'm so happy to welcome you to the Morning Glory Project. Thank you so much for being a part of today. I'm, I'm glad to be here, Betsy. Thank you. So let me preface this by saying, because I know you and I know you well, and because I know our family history, I know that you grew up uh, with a dad that left early with a brother who took his own life when he was 18 and you were nine, and that you suffered lots of trauma because of that, as did others in our family too. So that was the bed on which you um, built your young adult life. So tell me how it is that you kind of went from having a job, being to some degree functional, having a 13-year-old daughter and living in an apartment to being homeless. Tell me that link. So I was 35 years old the first time I tried methamphetamine. And it happened to be because I had started dating someone who was using. 
And I also had a roommate who was using, and I didn't, I didn't know that at the time. And the two of them happened to know each other, um, which I didn't know. And um, it started that he and I were using together, and then my roommate and I were using together. And then she started making drug deals in my apartment. And then she brought people to my apartment who started packing uh, drugs to try to, to traffic them into prison. And I got evicted from that place. And it started there that they were only doing it when my daughter was out of town visiting her dad. And then they started doing it when she was asleep at home with me. Mm. So you saw where things were heading. I did see where things were heading. I got, I got evicted from that apartment and then I moved, um, back to Woodlake and then the, the people found me there. They found me there. And because I had a car and because I had an apartment and because I had money coming in, I had still had a job at that time. Those are things that are very attractive to people who, <laughs> who need resources and transportation and, you know, a place to, to do activities that are illegal. And in Woodlake, um, and this is Woodlake, California, the central San Joaquin Valley in the central Valley. Um, in Woodlake, what happened was that somehow, Oh, I, I lost my job and then I was on unemployment. So I no longer had a job that I needed to go to every day. So you saw things were going to go badly. And you were aware that you had a 13-year-old daughter in the mix. Yeah, she was almost 13. She was she was getting ready to turn 13. Yeah. And that's when you decided to let her go live with her dad, as I recall. Yes. And I know that was not an easy choice, but it was a a wise one. Um, but I'm I that also seemed to be that's when you didn't have to be accountable and for her care or anything like that. And so the boyfriend and the drugs became pretty important. Well, I think that um, um, it, it started be it, it started changing from me just using drugs with people to there being a lot of criminal activities that were happening in in our home, which 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 raised a whole other different kind of problem and 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 would was bringing danger into our home as opposed to me leaving our house to to do dangerous things. It was right. coming into our house. Which is really scary. It was really scary. And at the last place I lived, I lived in before I became homeless, I came home one night and unlocked my door with my key, which was locked and my TV was gone and stuff in her house was missing in her, her things in her bedroom had been rearranged. So they had a key to my house that I didn't know about. And I knew at that point, this is dangerous. I'm in a dangerous place. My, this has become completely unmanageable and she's not safe here anymore. And that's when you let her go with live with her dad. Well, I'm, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, le letting her go. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a euphemism for there wasn't any other choice. That was the only thing to there do. There wasn't, there wasn't another choice. And also part of that was that I had, I had been mismanaging my, my ex-husband's child support. So it was unmanageable. I had lost, I had lost control of my environment. Yeah. Well, and that, and that's what in, in every recovery program says, one of the first thing is admitting that your life had become unmanageable. Yes. Your money had become unmanageable. Your relationships had become unmanageable. Your parenting had become unmanageable. Yes. And as heartbreaking as it is to say that, 
um, I'm really glad that you chose to let your, let your daughter go with her dad at that point. So then things, and also let me preface this by saying prior to this, you didn't engage in illegal activity. (laughs) You know, this was not your lifestyle. This was something that, that came to you and then drug use kind of invites you into. So then you found yourself without mooring as how I think of it. You know, you were an unmoored little boat <laughs> and drifted out. And so pretty, pretty soon you had only your car. Tell me, tell me that. So you began, you lost your apartment, you got evicted, lost the ability to pay for it and ended up in your car. Um, and really I ended up in my car only for about three or four hours because I had, I had, I only had enough belongings left. I had sold a lot of them or given away a lot of stuff. I only had enough belongings that actually fit into my car. And I started driving and I crashed my car within about like two hours. And so my car got crashed and impounded with all of the belongings that I had left inside my car. And, and then, uh, then, then I had nothing, right. That was it. You know, I was on the street and I had, I had essentially felt that like the most important relationships in my life were destroyed. Um, I didn't have any idea. (laughs) I mean, I couldn't at that time identify how I had gotten there. I just knew that I was there and this is where I am and this is my life now and this is what it is. I would imagine it just felt like an ocean wave just whooshed you out into this mess. Well, I mean, I mean, honestly, I think that I think what kept me as stable as I was able to be for so long was that my daughter w- lived with me and she needed to go to school every day and she needed and we needed to. So there was structure. There was structure and there was a reason to be doing the thing, the things that I was doing. But I, when I lost a job and didn't have anywhere to go and didn't have any and. I was getting more in unemployment at that time than I was at the job that I was working at. So there was no, there wasn't really an incentive at that time for me to, to try to find work again. Well, and you were drug using and all of that. So under different circumstances, I mean, my guess is that, you know, there've been any number of times when, when unemployment would have been more profitable than a lesser paid job, but that you were suffering with untreated mental illness, let's say it that way. And also drug use at the time. Right. I'd also like to say that once I didn't have a car and once I didn't have a home and once I didn't have income, the people that were attracted to me for the resources that I had didn't, you know, I was forgotten to them. These were not friendships of loyalty. No. And I, (laughs) and I didn't, and I didn't think that they were, but like, as I was losing the real relationships in my life and they were being replaced with artificial relationships that were just based on what I was, could be extracted from me. They were, they, that was all I had left was just these kind of tenuous connections to people. And then they, they were gone too. Yeah. Well, I've, I've often thought it was, it's apt that, um, when people are referred to, you know, people who have chemical dependency issues are called users, that they're using not only the chemicals, but they're also using the people around them right. for whatever they need to. And, and you were, I can say from the outside looking in that I saw that you were hanging out with users, <laughs> users, losers, and trouble kinds of folks. Yeah. So here you are, you found yourself on the streets and you are not somebody who grew up, you know, you didn't grow up in riches by any means, but you had a bed and a house and a, 
you know, a functional existence in that way. And here you were, so you were not exactly equipped or trained in uh, homeless survival techniques, I guess. And so I'm wondering at first, what, what was that like for you? What was it like to, you're the first person on the Morning Glory Project who's come from homelessness to home. And I, I want to know what that experience was like. And I, I think it might be valuable for us to hear. Um, so, um, I, I think because, um, I had always had a home, I had always been kind of on, on, on the outside of homelessness, looking at it, you know, and having sympathy for it, but not under, not really understanding, not really understanding what it's like. It's, 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 um, I mean, honestly, the only way to to really be able to cope with it is to use drugs, and I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't. I don't think I knew how deeply depressed I was during that time period because it was. I was masking it with methamphetamine use until until the day that I decided to really stop using, and that would be the four four years ago on February fourteenth. This was a period of about six years. This was not, you were not homeless, you know, th this kind of decline, you know, we can talk about the anniversary, we don't have to worry about the dates, but right. there was a period of several years during which time you were sometimes homeless and wandering the streets and sometimes using, sometimes you were getting arrested and going into jail and spending time in various jails in the Central Valley. Yes. And uh, you had lots and lots of police interaction. Can you tell me about that? Because on one hand, I, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm making fun of this, Mish, but you tell stories also that we can find a little humor in now that you're on the other side of it. Yeah. Tell me about your interactions with police officers. I didn't have any interactions with the police because there were two years before I became homeless where I was using, but I didn't have any interactions with police because I had a home to go to. Right. And right. so anything, anything that I would be doing while I was under the influence and being weird about, I was in my house, right. Or I was at somebody else's. So was, it was hidden from the public view. It was hidden. And so, um, in 2013 is when I was, when I actually became homeless and I pretty quickly started getting arrested right away. And so I, from 2013, 13 to 2015 is when I was actually on the street and routinely getting arrested for doing pretty, pretty public and conspicuous things and having emotional meltdowns in public. I had a lot of emotional meltdowns. And um, during that time period, though, initially, at least, I didn't see, I still thought that I was like, <laughs> I, my relationship with the police had still been one where they were there to help me, right? You know, they showed up they came to my house after my brother died. They were there as they were still helpers initially. But then that, that relationship that I thought that I had with the police kind of changed once I felt like I was being mistreated or victimized or persecuted or targeted. And um, so it, it did, it did, it, it changed a lot. And as, and as the family member looking in, I can say that when we would speak to you during that time, it was sort of like, this isn't fair. They're always after me. They're targeting me. They're picking on me. There, you know, all of that. Now I, I've since spoken with you and you talk about in a way, as I mentioned before, almost in a humorous way that your mental illness and your drug use made you a fairly conspicuous person. You're otherwise a shyer person, somebody who likes to blend in and not stick out. You know, I always have kind of like a theory that I want to test out. And part of it was 
you know, like one of the biggest things that people on the streets are doing are shoplifting or, or, or trying to gather things to be able to sell or to get drugs. And, and so, you know, I thought we, well, we need to know what the uh, return policies are places. And, we, and so I would go into stores and talk to the managers on camera and make sure that I knew exactly what the return policies were, you know, and exactly, exactly where the, where the blind spots were in stores. And, and so I did things that were conspicuous and I often got caught because I would test my own theory, right? <laughs> I'd go back into the store and do the thing that I had just had a conversation with the manager about and was obviously. Which, which sounds oddly comical now, but I know it, it was also painful. It does. I, I know, I know how absurd that is. So you got arrested, what, some 30 something times? Yes, I got arrested 35. Now this, at, during this time period, this was, this was in Tulare County and I got arrested 35 times in two years. And many of those for, for being drunken or not drunk, but intoxicated under the influence in public for being conspicuous in some way or for petty shoplifting yes. kinds of things. Yes. Right? They, all of my charges were misdemeanors. Um, except for the last one, which could have, which could have gone really bad. And that was for, a, 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 I've had two different times where I've been arrested for burglary, but again, it wasn't because I was trying to commit a crime. It was because I thought that I had permission to be in a place that I really did not. So the, the, your arrests were mostly symptoms of either drug use, mental illness, homelessness, or all three. Right. Yes. As opposed to you being kind of a hard-hearted criminal that gets arrested thirty something times in two oh, years. No, I mean, I mean, <laughs> honestly, only only bad criminals get arrested that often and that quickly. You know, I was not good at committing. <laughs> you were crimes. not a very was... good. You weren't very good at it. No. <laughs> Which I'm frankly kind of happy about, to tell you the truth, because I am too. Being on the outside, uh, I can tell you, and listeners, if any of you have ever had somebody in your life who you worry about, who's living in a dangerous way. When you would get arrested and we would get a call from jail, that's when I would relax. Right. Because I knew that you were, as tragic as being in jail was, I knew that you were, you had a bed to sleep in. I knew that you had food to eat. I knew that you weren't out being assaulted. I know that jail can be a dangerous place too. I'm not idealizing that. But to some degree, it felt like a safer thing. We, the, those of us who loved you, your mom, your aunts, your uncles and me, we felt more relaxed when you were in jail. It's a putrid irony, but it was the truth. And one other thing that I want to talk about before we kind of get into the next phase of questions, and that is that in addition to drug use, mental health, homelessness, there's also, I think, an underestimated influence that happens to folks, and that's sleep deprivation. That I don't know about you, but I don't use methamphetamine, and I you know, but when I have three or four nights of bad sleep, I'm not myself. And that's me with every privilege in the world in terms of my safety and comfort. So when you're, when you've been homeless for some time and your sleep is interrupted at best, tell me about the search for sleep and what it was like not to have it. I mean, that had to exacerbate your symptoms and your delusions and your hallucinations too. Um, so as I, as I look back even over a broader, broader period of time, I think sleep deprivation has probably always been one of my biggest risk, risk factors for most of my life, because there was, there was a period of time for years where I was having, where I crashed a lot of cars and none of those were for me being under the influence. Every single one of them was because I had fallen asleep at the wheel. 
And so sometimes it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice, but the choice is, well, if I, if I'm high, then I don't need to sleep for a couple of days and I don't have to worry about where I'm going to sleep. Cause I remember there were a couple of times like where I had fallen asleep in a certain place and I, and I would wake up and there would be police standing over me with light shining in my eyes. Right. And so currently now my, my relationship with sleep is, is still the thing I need to be the most conscious of and, and pretty protective and vigilant of. And I'm still trying to negotiate. So Misha, a few weeks ago, you and I were having brunch and you told me a story that in the four years since you've been in recovery, you had not told me before about how when you felt really lost, when the psychosis had really taken over, when you were having lots and lots of thoughts you couldn't control and delusions that you couldn't manage, that you would find your way to a public restroom. Tell me and tell our listeners about that story. Yes, I had I had four different, I think three or four different kinds of hallucinations that regularly started to appear during that that time that I know were protective and kind of helped me uh, or, or kept me from getting in deeper trouble in certain ways. And when they didn't appear is when I, I got, I ended up getting in more trouble. So this is an irony that, that the hallucinations actually proved helpful to you sometimes. That's what fascinates me. Tell me about that. Yes. So one of the hallucinations that I had is that I would I would end up in like a like a bathroom where there was it was just a, a bathroom door that I could lock in a in a in a like a one person bathroom like a what I'm going to give like as a uh, an example would be a time when I ended up in a Chipotle bathroom right mm-hmm. and I and I don't know I didn't I don't remember doing this on purpose but I somehow would end up turning on a water faucet right at a sink like where where it had a pretty heavy water flow and I would start to hear uh three voices falling in in the water and I think the water was just like a channel that I could focus on where I could where I could listen listen and I heard your voice my aunt Diane's voice and my uncle Jim's voice and they were like you guys were like a council of people who were trying to determine and give me good advice about what my next move should be and I would listen and listen and listen and your voices each said different things. Like my Uncle Jim's voice would tell me, would kind of um, help me orient myself to how much immediate danger I was in, in the situation that I was in. Diane's voice would kind of help me orient uh, like the time and place that I was in and my surroundings and orienting myself to my surroundings. And your voice would kind of orient me to how much how how far the distance was between where I was at and the next place I needed to be and uh, if I was able to kind of extract the message that each of you was trying to communicate to me it would it would kind of lead me into um, a direction that I could take like the example that I have of this Chipotle restaurant and it happened in a few different ways once a couple times when I was in a psych hospital and uh, so it it manifested a few different times with your voices coming like pouring over me like water Mm -hmm. was in this restaurant in the Chipotle restaurant Jim's voice said that I was in danger that I was going to go to jail you know that it was not I was not supposed to be there 
and I had been there too long. And and let it be said that Jim's voice would be in, in our actual lives. He'd be the one that would be pointing out dangers. It's his right. nature. And Diane would be somebody who would kind of try to help you step back and look at things. And right. I would be somebody trying to help you find the next steps. Yeah. So you, you kind of channeled our personalities in the counsel that you'd been given for a lifetime, really. Right. So your psyche, broken and busted up as it was, was kind of piecing together good things that you knew. Yes. And um, another hallucination that I had is that uh, if I was like in a parking lot and feeling kind of like at a restaurant or at a, or at a fast food place or something, and I was hungry, but I didn't want to, I didn't, I didn't want to have to beg for food. And I didn't want to have to, you know, you know, I just was really broken. I just needed to be, I just needed food. I didn't need money. I just needed something to eat. I just needed to not be hungry anymore. I would have like kind of a, a, a emotional meltdown in a parking lot and I would, and I would be calling out for help. I need help. I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to beg. I don't, I don't want to have to be asking people for money. I don't know. I can't feed myself. I just need to eat. And then somehow if I, in the, it, it happened every time when I was in this kind of circumstances that somehow in the distance, I would hear like an ambulance or a fire truck or a siren of, of some kind. And I would know that my mom was sending resources, was sending help to me. And um, somehow uh, some kind stranger would see me in this kind of broken crying state and would offer me food, would buy me food. And you told me one other time, too, when you were in jail and also in this frantic, psychotic state where there was lots of mayhem and craziness in your mind, and then they put you in an isolation cell because why wouldn't you, <laughs> of course, and you had another voice that would come to you. Tell me about that. The protective kind of hallucination that I had in jail always happened when I was in a holding cell. And this, all of these hallucinations happened when I was in Tulare County. And this was still, I, I didn't have these um, during my recent period of homelessness here, but in the holding cells at that particular jail and the, and each holding cell had kind of a different kind of acoustics to it is that if I was, if I was speaking or yelling out or asking for help and being conspicuous and looking crazy and, and my experience has been that the more, the, the crazier that you are in a holding cell in jail, the more likely you are to be ignored, right? Which felt like a personal affront and an injustice. And, but if I was yelling and I was, and I, I would hear my voice bouncing off the walls and it would just kind of like be this like feedback loop, you know, of, of, and it was, it was so terrible, but somehow I had a hallucination that my friend John somehow had like a recording, like his recording studio right in a, in a cell on the other side of the, uh, on the other side of the cell wall that I was in where he had his soundboards and, and was, and, and was coming in, he was being like flown in and he would be arriving and he would be like recording a soundtrack with me. Right. And he would be any, and, and it helped me, you know, I, I imagine him at, at his control panel, adjusting the dials and turning things and moving knobs and, and it would help me like regulate, turning down the volume, turning down my volume and, you know, helping me listen for reverb and, you know, helping me listen. For, it, it was, it was, 
I, I just, I knew he was there and I don't know how he did it. You know, <laughs> I don't know how, so I, because I was in jail a lot and I was in holding cells a lot. And then what would happen is it would calm you down, right? It, I, I, it would, it, I was able to, because I would start to sing, I would sing songs and I would, and I, and I, and I would keep singing until I had, until this, until it sounded right in my head, until I had a good mix, right. Until I had a good audio mix in my, in my ears <laughs> and, and then I could wrap it up and calm down. And that's probably, that's usually when I would fall, be able to fall asleep. And the, the, the important part of this that I also need to mention is that during this period of time, those two years in Tulare County, I really, really thought, I believed, completely believed that everyone in my family and all of my friends were, were watching me like on a, from some kind of a computer screen or at a distance or, or through a satellite or something. I really believed that. And so um, I, I knew that I was going through something that was too painful and would would completely break people's hearts if they had to see me directly in person going through it. But I somehow had in my mind that I was going, I was, I was going through something that I had to be physically by myself while I was going through this, that I had, but that everybody knew everybody could see me, but they were watching me do it from a distance that wouldn't break their hearts. Well, what, what really fascinates me about this Mish is that is a couple things. First of all, your psyche, you know, the human psyche is an amazing thing. And even though it was broken by your circumstances and by intoxication and, and, and your mental health status, that still your psyche, even through your hallucinations, was trying to protect you and pulling in the, the seeds of love that had been given to you by friends, by family, by your mom, and that you were pulling those together. You were piecing together your own mind in a way. And the other part of it that is also true is that the reality is that though we weren't seeing you literally through a satellite or a computer, we were monitoring you. We were keeping track. We were trying to find you in jails. We were trying to find you. Your, you know, your mom made lots of calls to lots of jails and hospitals and police stations and all of those things, as did we, and psych hospitals. And we certainly came down and visited when we needed to and, and all of those things. So, so that was true, that part of you. Though it was distorted, it was accurate in a twisted kind of a way. I'm so, so glad that our voices came out of the faucet, through the sirens, through the soundboards, <laughs> through those. I'm so, so glad that you were able to assemble those things. So let me move. Tell me today, four years later, tell me about your work and your life right now. Because though you still struggle, though you still, now you are treated for mental illness. Now you are four years sober. You have a home. Tell me what your life is like now. It's not easy, but it's functional and growing and beautiful to see. Tell me about it. Um, so the life that I have right now is, is uh, more beautiful than I ever could have imagined possible. And certainly a few years ago, didn't think that I would have deserved. And um, for the most part, all of the relationships that I thought that I had destroyed are still there and, and I'm rebuilding and everyone who, who 
truly loved me before still loves me. And um, I have my own apartment. I've had some really kind of lucky breaks in terms of, of the life that I've built that a lot of people haven't gotten. You've availed yourself of resources and of help. Um, yes, yes. I've had I've had some unexpected blessings kind of show up in terms of because I've had a lot of I've had I've had to do a lot of uh, I mean I've had to do I've had to do a lot of, of things I've, I've eaten a lot of elephants right <laughs> I've had a lot of elephants to eat one bite at a time many elephants uh, you know I I had a I had a pretty extensive um, court record criminal history that I've now gotten expunged um, and in three counties two of those counties are in a different part of the state I would I don't know that I would have been able to do that if I didn't have have a connection to help me do it who is in that county. I've had, I've had a lot of obstacles to overcome. Well, you let, let me list them. You got the court fees taken care of, some on your own and some with some help. You got your record expunged. That took a lot of work and a lot of evidence of your good living in order to do that. So I, I count it, call it luck if you will, but luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So, okay. You um, also have rebuilt and gotten your driver's license back and gotten a vehicle and take care of that vehicle during lots of obstacles there that we don't have time to go into. And you've reunited, you've reconnected with your daughter, with your mom, with loved ones, and you're working. Tell me about your work, what you're doing now and how you got there. I work as a caregiver um, for at, at a nine bed residential facility for adults with developmental disabilities um, in pretty close to my apartment that I live in, which is pretty good for me. So, um, and I also work as a, as I have a private client that I work doing caregiving work for also who has very different needs than the, the other population that I work with. So the population you're working with, it the, it's a residential place where these are severely disabled folks, people with profound developmental or physical disabilities that often leave them either wheelchair bound or bed bound. Some of them don't speak. It's a population not everybody can work with and some might find it really hard, but you talk about it differently. Tell me what your experience of working with these folks is like. Um, I find that the longer that I work with them, the fewer differences there are between us. I, I know that, um, I think this is kind of work that a lot of people would have have would find distasteful or messy or dirty in some ways or or complicated or or unpleasant or scary or depressing or any of those things. Right. But I think I think the longer that I work with them the more kind of neutral those those kind of the ideas of, of those things are because we have the same biological needs. We have the same needs for communication. We have the same needs for connection. They just are expressed in different ways. And, um, you know, they all kind of fall into basic categories or just expressed in different ways and learning about each of them as individuals and what their needs are and how to meet their needs. Um, it's, it's been one of the greatest gifts of my life and completely unexpected, completely unexpected. I, I never anticipated that I would have this kind of opportunity this way to learn about myself more than anything. Well, you know, I think about that. I, th I think about how you describe them, your work. And I'm really moved because 
like I said, this is work that not everybody could do. And, and it is a gift that you have, that you're able to build that bridge of empathy between you and them. And they are not there because they used meth or whatever. They're there because of circumstances completely beyond their control. But I see you as, I mean, really, are they any different? Don't we all have the basic need for connection, for physical care, for comfort, for uh, food, for cleanliness, for hygiene, for sleep, for all of those things? So at our, at our basic, 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 which is how these folks largely function at the most basic levels in some ways, we're not so different. <laughs> we're really not that different. Kind of a beautiful thought. Misha, I want to, we're running out of time. And so I want to ask one last question for your, for your benefit. How do you, you know, they say that you are recovering and not recovered, that the gerund form of recovery, not just from addiction, but just, I think we are all recovering from whatever pains, losses, traumas, disappointments, failures we might've been through. But when you add mental health matters and drug use to that too, that the gerund comes in handy. The ing is a good thing to remember. So because you're in the ing, because you're recovering, what do you do to take, make sure that you stay well? I know that you have, we, we mentioned earlier, being faithful about your sleep, being protective about it. What else do you need to do? This didn't happen by accident. You're not in the situation you're in accidentally. It requires care. So this is actually the first time in my life that I can think of where I've li where I've lived alone, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I I lived with my mother and then I moved out. I got I was married really young. I lived with roommates. I lived with my daughter. Um but this is the first time I've ever lived on my own, right? Mm -hmm. Where I don't have somebody else in my environment that I'm needing to be aware of. And so like, I'm really, I'm really learning about what my own needs are, what my habits are, what, what I need from my environment, what I, what I need in terms of, uh, I'm still learning how to manage myself. And um, that's something that that's taking daily practice in some ways I'm better at it than others. Um, it's taking me kind of, I'm still kind of in some ways unpacking and I've been here a year and a half. And so that causes me a little bit of stress still. So control. So, so being a custodian of your environment, right. Being a custodian of your money. Yes. I know that you've been really disciplined or tried to be about money, being a custodian of your sleep, getting counseling and support needs from friends and professionals. Yes. I mean, and it's, it's, it's super important to me that I'm, that I'm learning how to be a good employee because I don't, I haven't had a long history. I don't have a long work history and the history that I have has been really choppy and kind of inconsistent. And so, and so I, I there's a lot of, a lot of areas in my life that I'm needing to catch up on that, that for, for a, a, a person who hasn't been on my path has have, have had decades of time to build these practices and histories. And, and let's say also, you know, you're in your late forties. This isn't like you're starting at 20 figuring this out. So you're, no. you're assembling right. this new history 
in this yeah. way. Well, Mish, let me just say that um, I admire how hard you work to make this so. I know that it's a vulnerable thing to have this conversation with me and to record it. It was vulnerable to have it with me at all, much less to record it and to share it with others. And how deeply I appreciate and admire it because it's a struggle that's not over, but it is a struggle that is a different kind of struggle than it was 10 years ago, five years ago, six years ago. And I'm so glad you found your way to sobriety, to safety, back to family, back to friends, the good ones, not the users. (laughs) And that I watch how you care for others in your work with deep admiration. And they're lucky to have you. You have lots and lots of future opportunities. And I'm so hopeful about them. Thank you for today. Well, thank you for the lifetime that you've shared with me. I'm I'm grateful that, that you've always been a part of it. I love you. Love you, darling. Thank you. Listeners, I really want you to know that my decision to invite Mish to be a guest on the Morning Glory Project was not one that I made lightly. She would be the first to admit that she's still really vulnerable. And by the way, she was terrifically nervous today, as was I. This was a vulnerable thing to do, and I hope that you'll experience the listening of this story as an exercise in trust that I believe that even though we felt vulnerable in the telling of it, that we both appreciated the value of sharing Misha's story. When I think about the extra blooms from this episode, there are lots of them, but the one that really stands out and the one that really made me want to have her as a guest was that even in her most broken state, her most psychotic, disorganized, busted up, lost state, that her psyche, her fragmented psyche, was searching inside to put herself together again. That the love seeds that she had received, the love seeds that we had planted, her loved ones, her family members, her mom, her daughter, her dearest friends that were not users, Those seeds were planted in her and she was able to find them and piece them together, even though it was through an hallucination. The human psyche is just a miraculous, amazing thing, isn't it? And so I want to say to those of you that may have a loved one that you feel has slipped away or is slipping away, it doesn't always turn out like it has for us with Mish. And we've lost others in our family to mental illness, to addiction, and indeed to suicide. But as is evidenced in Misha's story, the love seeds that are planted are not without value. They may be the thing that helps somebody pull themselves back together again. It can feel like you're just talking into the wind when you're expressing care for somebody who seems to be on a path of self-destruction. But you're planting seeds. All you can do is all you can do. 
to be a loved one, to care, to share that. And indeed to set limits when you have to. We had to set limits here too when things weren't going so well. But it's really nice to have her back in the fold. Thanks for listening to this very special, for me, episode of The Morning Glory Project. Our 100th episode, I'm grateful to every guest, to every listener, to my co-producer, Angela Washington, to Jeremy Brisky, the sound editor who fixes my flubs, to Lisa Daly, who posts what we do on websites and makes them look pretty good, and to Ashley Hyde, who helps us communicate out what we do. Thank you to this beautiful team. Thank you to you listeners. And thank you to all of the Morning Glory Project guests. I hope that this gives you some more seeds so that your vines can grow and so that you can continue to bloom.